The book of Judges. So remember, after Joshua led the tribes of Israel into the promised land, he called them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the commands of the Torah. And if they do this, they will show all the other nations what God is like. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua and basically tells the story of Israel's total failure. The book's name comes from the type of leaders Israel had in this period. Before they had any kings, the tribes were all governed by these judges. Now, don't think of a courtroom. These were regional political military leaders, more like a tribal chieftain. And you need to be warned, the book of Judges is very disturbing and violent. It tells the tragic tale of Israel's moral corruption, of its bad leadership, and basically how they become no different than the Canaanites. But this sad story is also meant to generate hope for the future. And you can see this in how the book's designed. There's a large introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure as they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. Then the large main section of the book has stories about the growing corruption of Israel's judges. And the progression here shows how Israel's leaders go from pretty good to okay to bad to worse. The concluding section is really disturbing and shows the corruption of the people of Israel as a whole. So let's dive in and we can explore each part a bit more. The opening section begins with the tribes of Israel in their territories in the Promised Land. And while Joshua defeated some key Canaanite towns, there was still a lot of land to be taken and lots of Canaanites living in those areas. And so chapter 1 gives a long list of Canaanite groups and towns that Israel just failed to drive out from the land. Now, remember, the whole point of driving out the Canaanites was to avoid their moral corruption and their way of worshiping the gods through child sacrifice. God had called Israel to be a holy people, and that does not happen. Chapter 2 describes how Israel just moved in alongside the Canaanites and adopted all their cultural and religious practices. And it's right here that the story stops. For nearly a whole chapter, the narrator gives us an overview of everything that's about to happen in the body of the book. This part of Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites, and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually Israel would sin again, and it would all start over. This cycle provides the literary design and flow for the next main section of the book. It gets repeated for each of the six main judges whose stories are told here. Now the stories of the first three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, they are epic adventures. They're also extremely bloody stories. Either the judge themselves or people who help the judge, they defeat their enemies and deliver the people of Israel. The stories about the next three judges are longer, and they focus in on the character flaws of the judges, which get increasingly worse. So Gideon, he begins pretty well. He's a coward of a man, but he eventually comes to trust that God can save Israel through him. And so he defeats a huge army of Midianites with only 300 men carrying torches and clay pots. But Gideon has a nasty temper, and he murders a bunch of fellow Israelites for not helping him in his battle. And then it all goes downhill from there. He makes an idol from the gold that he won in his battles. And then after he dies, all Israel worships the idol as a god, and the cycle begins again. 
The next main judge is Jephthah, who's something of a mafia thug living up in the hills. And when things get really bad for Israel, the elders come to him begging for his help. And Jephthah was a very effective leader. He won lots of battles against the Ammonites, but he was so unfamiliar with the God of Israel, he treats him like a Canaanite God. He vows to sacrifice his daughter if he wins the battle. This tragic story, it shows just how far Israel has fallen. They no longer know the character of their own God, which leads to murder and to false worship. The last judge, Samson, is by far the worst. His life began full of promise, but he has no regard for the God of Israel. He was promiscuous, violent, and arrogant. He did win brutally strategic victories over the Philistines, but only at the expense of his own integrity, and his life ends in a violent rush of mass murder. Now, a quick note here. You'll notice a repeated theme in the main section of the book, that at key moments, God's Spirit will empower each of these judges to accomplish these great acts of deliverance. Now, the fact that God uses these really screwed up people doesn't mean he endorses all or even any of their decisions. God is committed first and foremost to saving his people, but all he has to work with is these corrupt leaders. And so work with them, he does. This whole section is designed to show just how bad things have gotten. You can't even tell the Israelites and the Canaanites apart anymore, and that's just the leaders. The final section shows Israel as a whole hitting bottom. There are two tragic stories here, and they are not for the faint of heart. They're structured by this key line that gets repeated four times at the close of the book. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The first story is about an Israelite named Micah who builds a private temple to an idol, and that gets plundered by a private army sent from the tribe of Dan. So they come and they steal everything, and then they go and burn down the peaceful city of Laish and murder all of its inhabitants. It's a horrifying story. When Israel forgets its God, might makes right. The final story of the book is even worse. It's a shocking tale of sexual abuse and violence, which all leads to Israel's first civil war. It's very disturbing. And that's the point. These stories are meant to serve as a warning. Israel's descent into self-destruction is the result of turning away from the God who loves them and saved them out of slavery in Egypt. And now Israel needs to be delivered again from themselves. The only glimmer of hope in this story is found in this repeated line in the last part of the book. It actually forms the last sentence of the story. Israel has no king. And so the stage is set for the following books to tell the origins of King David's family, the book of Ruth, and also the origins of kingship itself in Israel, the book of 1 Samuel. But the story of Judges has value as a tragedy. It's a sobering explanation of the human condition, and ultimately it points out the need for God's grace to send a king who will rescue his people. And that's the book of Judges. Well, that's a doozy, isn't it? Yay, we're in the book of Judges today. <laughs> Actually, I was pretty excited about it because I really love the stories of Gideon and Samson and Deborah because it shows how God can use anyone, right? So I was pretty excited to preach about one of those. And then God stopped me in chapter one. <laughs> 
And I was like, no, I really want to preach a great story. You know, my life's been changed by those. But we are right at chapter one and two today. And I think God has a powerful gift and reminder for us today. And it starts with this question. How's your sin? How's your sin going? Is it good? Do you know? Are you aware of your sin? How much? Do you see it? Do you keep track? How much have you sinned today so far? Do we know? I've got some friends coming up to help me. Come on up, friends. Oh yeah, get rid of the baby, quick. (laughs) God was holding a baby. All right, so we've got God and human. They're gonna come right here for us. God and us. And this is a relationship with God. It's love and it is life. So good, right? And this is sin. And sin separates us from him. Sin is a pushing away, a turning from him, and we make a life for ourselves instead of having a life with him, don't we? And sin becomes a prison, and sin eats away at our souls and our lives, and the fruit of sin, the earnings, the payment, The wages of sin are death. Why? Well, God is life. And sin is not God. So, sin is not life. So, (laughs) sin is death. And that's where we are. Thank God. God, that's not the end of the story. So God is three. Where's the rest of my team? God loves us so much. Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, three ways, decide to pay the wages, the payment on our behalf by sending Jesus, who is God and the Son of God at the same time, our little brains can't comprehend it, and Jesus takes our payment and the payment, the wages of our sin, 
are paid. And he defeats death and brings us the opportunity to turn once again to God and be back in this relationship. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Now hang on, Holy Spirit, don't run away. My Holy Spirit was taken off, that was scary. Don't leave us, presence of God. Okay. If you don't have this relationship in your life, you can have it. All you have to say is, God, I turned. I am that person. I am making a life without you. And I want to live in a God hug. I want this. And you can just say to him, I accept Jesus and I want to follow you, God. And you can do that right now. You can have this right now. So if you want it, you can. So, we humans no longer sin, right? Oh, we just hug him. We just hug him all day long, don't we? No problems, we're done. Are we? No. We keep sinning. We push away and we turn from him again, don't we? And that's what we're going to talk about today. What are we supposed to do, human, if you could push him away again? What are we supposed to do with children of God who actively sin? What are we supposed to do? It's the story of us, isn't it? (laughs) So that's what we're going to do today. Thank you, guys. Guys, I honestly have no idea how much I sin every day. Does anybody else feel that way? I think I don't see it. First of all, I'm crazy busy. Crazy. And so I think I'm just moving at the speed of life as fast as I can. (laughs) And I think I'm not aware. So I really need this sermon as much as everyone else. And I'll tell you, it's been a very interesting week as I've been preparing for this. (laughs) If God asks you to preach on confessing sin, buckle up. That's all I'm just going to say. Anyway, so guys, we're going to pray. Pray for this sermon. Who's praying? Greg, Thatcher. Thank you for being our big brother slash dad slash everything you are to us. So, Lord, this morning, in Jesus' name, open our hearts to your spirit. Just like we heard, God, about you reconciling us. Thank you for reconciling us. Lord, open our ears to hear. Open our eyes to see what you want. Speak through Justine this morning. God, even in these few minutes before uh, she prepare, t- sorry, p- uh, delivers the rest of it, in Jesus' name, Lord, Holy Spirit, just take over. Mm-hmm. And, Father, this morning, I pray for my friend Karen Grubbs in Uganda at her church there, Father, that you would continue to grow them, to equip them, and to show yourself strong in that place. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm, Amen, amen. Isn't that amazing that there are people following Jesus all over the world? Isn't that amazing? Mm. All right, guys. You ready to dive into Judges? (laughs) Excited? (laughs) Judges, stuck. That's our theme. Do you like that? Do you know who makes those slides? 
It's me. Okay. Um, Judges 1, after the death of Joshua. So let's just check where we are. God's people were enslaved in Egypt. Moses, right? God used Moses to bring them out. There was an interaction, remember, between God and his people. God said, do you want to be my kids? And all the people said, yes, we will do whatever you say. Remember? They were so stoked about it. Do you remember that? And, <laughs> and then Moses went to get like the, the rest of the rules of what it is to follow God. Because remember, the only way of living they knew was Egyptian. They needed to know how it was, what it would be to live as God's people. They couldn't Google it. You know what I'm saying? It was fresh. There was, nobody knew. Moses is up on the mountain. What happens? Meltdown earrings. Make a golden calf. They already had, by the way, the Ten Commandments. Remember that? Number one, have no other gods before me and do not make for yourself any graven image of anything nor bow down to it or worship it. Sounds good. Who's got earrings? Who wants to make a golden cow? I mean, it literally was like this. I think it was like 40 days. <laughs> it's not very long. Anyway, God's like, I'm done with you. And Moses is like, please don't be done with us. God's like, all right. <laughs> you guys remember this? And then through the wilderness they go and, and totally learned their lesson, right? And obeyed God the whole way. Negatory. So they kept going, yes, we love you, God. We also love to do things our own way because God gave us the power of free will and he also put his character in us and his power of creation, ideas, strength. You guys, because we're made in the image of God, we absolutely could be self-sufficient. True? True? God could also be self-sufficient. God is not self-sufficient. He's interdependent, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we think, right, the snake really told Adam and Eve, you can be like God. God has all the power to be anything he wants. He could be a total jerk of a God. Did you know that? God could be an absolute jerk. Do you know what he chooses instead? Love. He has total free will. He could do whatever he wants. He could get rid of us like that. He could, right? He's not bound by anything, but he chooses love. He chooses to invest in us. In the same way, we have the same ability, this free will and this incredible being made in the image of God, right? But we too have to choose to use it well. Well, the Israelites use it terribly. <laughs> They're a total train wreck over and over and over. I'm not just calling them a train wreck because I also do this. Right, guys? We are just like Israel. Years and years and years in the wilderness, learning what it is to know God and walk with him and failing. And then we're finally at the promised land. Last week, we were in the book of Joshua, and we're starting to go into the promised land. Okay, that's where we're at. So we're in the promised land, and we're starting to take the promised land. Now, when God gives you a promise, are you like, I'm sure God is going to hand it to me on a silver platter because he's nice and he won't make me work for anything, right? I mean, if we were God, we might do that. <laughs> but he knows that we become stronger in him when we have to trust him in hard times. Truth? Okay. <clears throat> you were not excited about that point. You were like, I don't know. 
I don't like it. I know I don't like it either. I'm <laughs> just saying it's what he does. So he's brought them into the promised land and he said, and now you have to clean it. You have to get rid of these people who have chosen not God and will never choose God. Do you guys know that when God kills people? It's because they, all the people of the Old Testament that have been cleansed from the land, there was no chance they would turn to God. God knew it. Do you understand? He's not this killing innocent people God. Also, this earth life is like a blip in eternity, so it doesn't matter as much as we think it does. Do you know what I'm saying? So, the people of God are going into the promised land and cleansing it straight up. That's where we're at. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of Yahweh, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And Yahweh said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. (laughs) P.S. not on a silver platter like we just said. Then Judah went up and Yahweh gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. Reading between the lines, there was a battle (laughs) and God gave victory to his people, okay? And Yahweh was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country. Excellent. We like this, right? Don't you feel like in your walk with God, this is how it is? Like when you first meet Jesus and you're like, I'm gonna give you stuff, God, and he, he gives you victory over some things and you're like, wow, God is awesome. I wanted to just tangent right now to talk about Kanye, but I'm not going to. I'm gonna rein it in. (laughs) But there is this sense, right, when you first accept Jesus, you see his goodness and you're like, glory of, do you know what I'm talking about? Do I have to talk about Kanye? I don't have, you can Google Kanye later. Okay, so we think, oh God's so good, this is so easy, look at his blessings, it is so wonderful, right? I'm so victorious in Jesus' name. Don't we get kind of excited? Yeah. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Because they had chariots of iron, God must not have seen their chariots. They must have been in storage and God missed it from his like satellite view. So clearly we can't take that portion of the land. Clearly, it is too great for us and God to battle. Haven't we done that in our lives where we get to a certain point and we're like, this stronghold in my life is far too great. I cannot have victory over this. I can't. It's made of iron. I can't fight this, right? The people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, and the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And the rest of the book of Judges, I just paraphrased it for us down the bottom. They did not drive out the inhabitants, so they lived among the Canaanites. In our lives, when God says, let's clean house, let's do it, let's give you a brand new start, Let's just, let's work on it. And you're like, yes. And then you're like, but the chariots of iron and this thing is too hard. And you know what? I'm just gonna coexist with the sin in my life. Ever done that? 
You might even think, you know what, I don't even go down to that valley. I just keep that old sin of mine boxed away. (laughs) I don't access it. I don't need to go there, right? Skeletons in your closet, just keep the closet closed. That's not healed, that's not whole, right? For me, I feel like, I've been walking with Jesus for a very long time. I'm 44, I think I met Jesus when I was three, four, I don't know. But I don't ever know not, I don't remember ever not knowing him and walking with him. And I've been through a lot. And I think I've just had a lot of victories. (laughs) So I think maybe I could just be done. Do you know what I mean? We've come so far, we've had so much victory, can we just call it good and let the rest lie? (laughs) Do you feel like that a little bit? Oh man, but you know what, following God, it's never done, is it? Being set free, it's never done. If you meet somebody that's like, oh, I am healed and whole, there is nothing for me to work on. Walk away slowly. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Nice for you and I, you know, like that is just not true. You can't even tell the Israelites from the Canaanites anymore. That wrecks me. (laughs) That breaks my heart. I sure as heck, when the world looks into my life, they don't go, oh, I I couldn't even tell you were a Christian. (laughs) I'm saying it like that because I worked at a store when I was in college and somebody said that to me. And at first I was like, yeah, because I'm hip. And then, then I was like, oh... You can't tell I'm a Christian? I'm ashamed of that. Doesn't Jesus make a difference at all, you know? Anyway, um, it becomes kind of like a mix. It's like a blur. It's like our sin and the world's culture and the God stuff blurs and there's no real firm line. Do you know what I mean? I feel like I'm jumping ahead. Let me just look here for a sec. (coughs) (coughs) Sorry, guys. When Yahweh's holy people live with a mix of not God things and God things. That's the hotbed for sin, isn't it? That's where it happens. Um... And this is how Israel lived, of course. And I do that all the time. For me, I feel like the things I bow to are fear, especially when it comes to my kids. Um, Get very, very afraid of something happening to them or something happening to me and them being left. I think I bow to um, materialism a lot. Like I have that need inside of me. I think I need one more thing. I think I need one more T-shirt, one more set of earrings. I don't know. (laughs) Is it just me? (laughs) You know? Uh, To throw my husband under the bus, 
One sin I don't have is needing the latest Apple product, but he always is like, oh, Apple's launching something today, I'm going to watch the... Does anyone else watch the Apple? You're alone. Everyone's like, no, no, no. And Josh does this thing where he's like, I'd really love an Apple Watch, and I'm like, instead of groceries? Like, I don't understand what you're saying. Like, where is this coming from? And then he's like, no, I don't need one but it could really make life better if I had one. Don't we bow to stuff? We just bow to stuff. And it's just such a blur that I don't think I know what to call sin and what not to call sin. Do you know what I mean? And I'm very good at justifying my attitude. (laughs) Josh and I were talking this morning about parenting And I was like, when do you feel like you've sinned? And he goes, sometimes when I overact with the kids and I go, oh, that's not a sin. (laughs) I can feel myself. (laughs) They need to learn what it's like to make somebody angry. But then what I said is, but does God say not to do that or does our culture say not to do that? Because there's a lot happening in our culture right now about how you're supposed to treat your kids. Blurred, right? So how do we even know? What is right? What is wrong? What is good? What is bad? How can we know? Side note. (laughs) Whose um, fault is this situation? Not God's fault. Whose fault? Israel. Israel, they're the ones who didn't clean out the land. True or not true? However, I have this feeling that even if they did clean out the land, they still would have found more jewelry and made more idols because they're human and humans sin. Do you hear what I'm saying? So I don't think this is because, really, the Canaanites. (laughs) I think it's within us. There's a seed of self, sin, not God, don't we? It's that pull to being our own gods. Oh, we love it. Don't we love being the bosses of ourselves? You know, it's such a lie when you're told, well, when you're an adult, when you're 18, you can do whatever you want, but as long as you live under my roof, you're gonna go by my rules. That is a lie, that is a crock, man. Do you know why? You're never the boss of you. As soon as you're 18, you're gonna have to pay taxes and get a job, and oh my gosh. Living under your parents' roof is the best years of your life. Don't take it for granted. You think their rules are harsh? Wait till you have to work out tax code. (laughs) Anyway, back to our story. So they're co-inhabiting. You know, and, and this is our situation too. The planet is a mix of cultures. And every human uh, culture group creates its own version of good and bad. Um, that's not actually evil. Because this is in the beginning when God made humankind. Let us make human beings in our image to be like us and they will reign over. Do you see it? And right down here, verse 28, then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, lead it, manage it, create, build, have structures, Multiply, be fruit. Do you feel that? It is not bad that as a culture we have laws. But there is no human culture on the planet that is God's culture through and through. I would like to argue that none of the human cultures are God's barely at all. 
Because God's culture transcends our earth lives utterly, doesn't it? We still have to obey earth laws, but we don't have to bow to them like God's. And we're not from here. We're from heaven. We're just passing through. We have to know God's culture. Um, I really wanted to launch into something here because I'm, I am a fan of not being a fan of John Stuart Mill. Are there any like philosophers here? Who knows about John Stuart Mill? Greg, a few. Another week, we're totally gonna talk about John Stuart Mill, but human philosophies of, of the way humans treat each other, it's a fascinating study. I'll just say this, inside of all of us, even the most benevolent, loving, extraordinary, Mother Teresa, incredible person, there is still a subconscious self-preservation and avoidance of pain. It's wired into us. It's called your nervous system. <laughs> we pull off our hands from hot things, don't we? And we have that built into us. So even on our very best day, we still put self first. Do you hear what I'm saying? So we cannot argue that we don't have this in play, basically. Um, Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Doesn't that sum up our humanity entirely? It's not our job to clean up the world. Do you understand what I'm saying? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes because they didn't have the king. They didn't have Jesus. But it was Israel's job to worship God themselves and be a transform transformative force in the culture? Do you know what I'm saying? That's our call too. I think as Christians, we spend a lot of time going, if I could just clean up my society, then I would have an easier time following Jesus and it would be more godly. <laughs> Do you hear what I'm saying? It's not actually our calling. God didn't say to create lands where people were required to worship him. That would be religion. What we're supposed to work on is us, inside of us. It doesn't matter what's going on around. It doesn't matter what cultures are blurred. When we have a relationship with God, that transcends, right? When I focus on doing what's right in culture, because I'm from another country, Hence the accent. My youngest, who just turned five, goes, why do you talk funny? It's not how you say it. Every kid, every one of my kids has done this to me, and I'm like, punching children. No, I don't. That would be a sin. So, um, <laughs> you talk funny. I'm from another country. Um, so, I had to change when I came here, because Americans, and specifically Seattle Americans, do things a certain way. And it's exhausting to keep up. <laughs> Do you guys feel that a little bit too? Any transplants that came to Seattle and you're like, oh, the Seattle no? The, the Seattle yes, it's actually a no, or the 
the Seattle freeze, or you know all the things they talk about in all of these cultures. Sometimes I feel like I'm trying so hard to do the right thing here in America that I am neglecting giving time and energy to doing the right thing for my God. I'm pleasing people so you'll accept me and I stop offending people and the whole time I'm abandoning what it is to be his daughter. Do you, you hear what I'm saying? And we are on a treadmill that we have to get off, a hamster wheel. We have to get off it. Right now, the culture is dominated by, you offended me so you need to apologize. So now I'm like, I shouldn't say anything. Jenny, you know me, I should stop talking, right? <laughs> Everything I say comes out wrong, so I'm constantly like, I guess I upset them, and I guess I upset them, and it's, do you know what I'm saying? That's another week. (laughs) Talk about that another week. Let's see what God told the Israelites. So Yahweh burned with anger against Israel. He said, because these people have violated my covenant, which I made with their ancestors, and have ignored my commands, I will no longer drive out the nations that Joshua left unconquered when he died. Check this out. I did this to test Israel, to see whether or not they would follow the ways of Yahweh as their ancestors did. That is why Yahweh left those nations in place. He did not quickly drive them out or allow Joshua to conquer them all. Turns out, the culture we live in is a testing ground for us. Our response to it indicates whether we are Yahweh's or not. I don't know why, but this, like the penny dropped for me when I was reading this. It's like, oh, okay. Because again, changing our culture around us will not change the fact that we're sinful inside of us. So we have a big problem. Because Jesus paid the price, our sin has been forgiven, we've been set free from bondage. Right? We no longer live in this sin state. We live in a God hug and it's done. It's over. But we have a problem because we keep sinning. So we need an answer. And here we have it in Psalm 32. How happy and fulfilled are those whose rebellion has been forgiven, those whose sins are covered by blood. How blessed and relieved are those who have confessed their corruption, crookedness, twisting of right standards to Yahweh. For he wipes their slates clean and removes hypocrisy from their hearts. Before I confessed my sins, I kept it all inside. My dishonesty devastated my inner life, causing my life to be filled with frustration, irrepressible anguish, and misery. The pain never let up, for your hand of conviction was heavy on my heart. My strength was sapped. My inner life dried up like a spiritual drought within my soul. Then I finally admitted to you all my sins, refusing to hide them any longer. I said, my life-giving God, I will openly acknowledge my evil actions, and you forgave me. All at once, the guilt of my sin washed away and all my pain disappeared. 
This is what I've learned through it all. All believers should confess their sins to God. Do it every time God has uncovered you in the time of exposing. For if you do this, when sudden storms of life overwhelm, you'll be kept safe. Lord, you are my secret hiding place, protecting me from these troubles, surrounding me with songs of gladness. Your joyous shouts of rescue release my breakthrough. I hear the Lord saying, I will stay close to you, instructing and guiding you along the pathway for your life. I will advise you along the way and lead you forth with my eyes as your guide. So don't make it difficult. <laughs> don't be stubborn when I take you where you've not been before. Don't make me tug you and pull you along. Just come with me. So my conclusion is this. Many are the sorrows and frustrations of those who don't come clean with God. But when you trust in the Lord for forgiveness, his wraparound love will surround you. This is how we keep in a God hug. Seeing our sin. Confessing it. Confess means to tell the truth. Repent. Repent means I am sorry and I do not want to do this again. And obey. To follow him and stop following self. This is our path, isn't it? So I was praying about this. I was feeling very aware of that blur between cultures. And I felt like Father said to me and to us, you have to be intentional, not casual about your sin. And I realized that I don't confess my sin. I was being casual about my sin state. I was letting the blur justify my life. The good news is Yahweh is forgiving. It's a big part of his character. And if we step into confession, and receive his forgiveness, you get to interact with this part of God that if you do not confess your sin, you will miss. You won't know him. He's not surprised that we need forgiveness. Do you think, oh my gosh, they, they messed up again? This is surprising to me. <laughs> no, he knows you. He knows the state of you. He knew the risk when he made us. Before the foundations of the world, God chose the plan of Jesus coming to earth. They knew it when they were like, let's make people. That sounds great. Oh, we're going to have to die for them. Yes, let's do it. <laughs> that, you know what I'm saying? That's how that went. This is not a surprise to him. Confessing your sin steps you into an authentic relationship with God. Ignoring it or not seeing it or being stuck in the blur of life keeps you from that relationship. My brain has known this for many, many years, but for some reason, this is a callback 
to the Lord. I feel like God is saying it is time for you to be a confessing, um, forgive, receiving, and obedient people. You know what I'm saying? Like This has to be the hallmark of who we are. This is the good news of God, that we mess up and do our own thing and he saves us. If we don't embody this confession life, we don't look like his people at all. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's like this has to be, if, if the world were to look at the church right now, well, the polls and the, all of the, the research says that the world looks at the church and says, judgmental, hating, mean. Those are the things that the world says about the church. Heartbreaking, isn't it? The church should look at us and go, really honest about their failings and spending a lot of time working it out. <laughs> I want that, I, wouldn't that be great? Oh man, those church people, they are really honest about how they're doing. Wouldn't that be great? I feel like that would give us actual conversations to have with people. Your Father God says to you, come now and let's deliberate over the next steps to take together. Yahweh promises you over and over, though your sins stain you like scarlet, I will whiten them like bright new fallen snow. Even though they are deep red like crimson, they will be made white like wool. It's beautiful, isn't it? Absolutely beautiful. Confession of sin is the way to find restoration and unbroken fellowship with God. It cleanses the conscience and removes every obstacle from communion with Christ. Confession does not gain God's acceptance, for that was won for us forever by the sacrifice of Christ. It is on the basis of being his dearly loved children that we restore intimacy with God through our tender-hearted confession before him. Confession is raw honesty about who I am and who Jesus is. Confession clears the blur and helps us get back to that hug. Okay, so let's talk practically about how to do this. Because it's all very nice to talk about it, right? But what does confession look like? Are you ready for it? Do we need to do some calisthenics? Should we stand? Yeah, let's stand up. Let's stand up. Let's do it. Let's just get ready because we're going to do some confession. You know, honestly, uh, if we were to uh, prepare for confession in our lives, it might do us well. So let's do whatever. Breathe in, whatever you. I'm stepping into a new thing, God. We're gonna do it, we're gonna do confession like we've never done confession before. Are you ready, are you excited? Whew. Okay, when you're ready to do some confession, you can sit down. It's okay if you have to stand up the rest of the service. <laughs> all right, first of all, we need to know what sin is. This blur is no joke, friends, is it? It is no joke, and if you've traveled at all, you will know that every country has its own set of rules, and they're all human, okay? So we've, first things first, we have to work out what do you even confess? Don't spend your life confessing what other people have told you are wrong with you. They are not the Holy Spirit. Now, caveat, 
In the body of Christ, there will be people who call out sin in your life. But if they really love Jesus, they will be shaking and crying when they do it. Because one finger out, four fingers back, right? (laughs) We need to know the Bible, straight up. The Bible is our guide for knowing what God's culture is. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. He is So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. He's also lived on this planet. He has also experienced the blur. He has also lived in a culture that required him to behave in religious ways that were not the heart of God. Do you understand? Jesus knows our, our difficulty, okay? So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will see, receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. We have to be people of the Bible. If you don't have a regular learning and study practice of reading the Bible, let's do it. Let's get that sorted out, Okay? We have lots of great resources. Join a small group. Get in a threefold. Ask someone to mentor you. Do you know right now, look around where you sit. Say hi to your chair neighborhood. It's your little chair neighborhood. (laughs) These are your neighbors. Hello, neighbor. Hello, neighbor. It's nice to meet you. Connect to your chair neighborhood. I know it can be scary to ask somebody to be a part of your life. I know, it's, it feels a bit dangerous, but I really believe the Holy Spirit will do something great if you ask him, God, should I connect with that person and maybe ask, maybe they're in a threefold or not in a threefold. Threefolds are something that we do at Lake Sam. It's three or four people getting together regularly to talk about life, to confess sin and pray together. And if your threefold does not have sin confession in it, this week it will. Make it happen. (laughs) Yeah, there's no other way to separate the blur, is it? There's no other way. We have to know the Bible. We have to know God's ways. Okay. Second, make regular practice of confession and repentance and and receiving forgiveness and choosing obedience. We can't just do this on the side. It's not going to be a fringe thing. Um, (laughs) Kurt and I had this conversation this week. Kurt and I have this, we have these funny conversations a lot. So hear my heart. Kurt will be like, well, how's your prayer walks? How's your devotional walks? And I was like, Kurt, I don't go outside. (laughs) Do you know, Kurt takes his devotions, he walks outside. Does anybody else walk outside for their devotionals? Nobody? I was expecting like a few, especially in Seattle, it's just cold and rainy, but he goes out because that's where he feels like he connects with the Lord. And, and, you know, and I'm like, I have small children, man. I can't leave the house. And, and he's like, well, you could get up earlier. And I'm like, how dare you? And then, you know, like... We... <laughs> and, and I'm so glad to have him as a mentor because he's very um, 
understanding and caring, right? There's no rules. But he has regularly said to me, um, well, you know, the first half of my devotionals, I pray about me, it's all about me. Can I tell you what I've always thought for the 20 years that I've been friends with Kurt? It's kind of narcissistic, don't you think? <laughs> the first half of your devotionals talking about yourself, like seriously, because I said like, to him, I said to him this week, I have a lot of people to pray for, man. And I'm putting me as the least. And I'm gonna lift all the other needs of my beloved friends who are suffering, need healing, my kids, my husband. I'm gonna petition for them because I'm laying down my needs to care for them. And as I was saying it out of my mouth, I was like, oh crap. Um, you put the oxygen mask on yourself first. So then you can put the oxygen masks on others. Yeah. Yeah, we should be praying about ourselves a lot. A lot. And I just haven't been doing it. I pray for my healing and I pray for certain things. And usually my confession with the Lord is, oh, I haven't had time to sit with you today. That's my confession most of all. And I know he sees me, he sees my life with my kids and my work and all the things, that he sees me. I don't feel condemned by it, but I do feel sad and longing and the blur just gets deeper and wider when we're not spending time with God. So make confession a part of your life. Um, I actually make calendar items for things that are important and they alert on my phone and Josh and I have synced calendars so Despite all of our efforts to fix the settings, he, they alert him too. So do you get the alerts in the morning when I'm praying for you about each different topic? Oh no, that's my prayer notebook. I pray for Josh for something different every day, a whole bunch of different things. Apparently, I'm gonna have to make some for myself too, so I'm praying for myself. Apparently, I've been a bit of a martyr without realizing it. Not a good martyr, a bad martyr. Is that a thing? What am I saying right now? Do you know what I'm saying, Greg? Help me out. There are two things in the Bible about confession that I think are kind of important for us to talk about. If we, have no, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We get that, right? Yeah. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, this is God, and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So... When you confess your sins to God, you are forgiven, yes? And cleansed. So you gotta to talk to God. But you guys, James, make this your common practice. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can live together whole and healed. The prayer of a person living right with God is something powerful to be reckoned with. Confess your sins to God and you'll be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and you will be healed and whole and in community. So I spent this week chatting with a Catholic friend because the Catholic Church does confession like no other, right? <laughs> oh man. So we are not Catholic for reasons. We don't need to go into it today. There are definitely things about the Catholic Church that I don't agree with 
but we're going to put that aside today and we're just going to talk about something that they do with confession. Because as Protestants, protest ants is what we are. Um, Martin Luther protested, Protestant means protest. He protested some of the things about the Catholic Church that I agree with were not great, right? Protestants don't do formal confession like Catholics do. So, Catholics go to confessional and confess their sins to a priest. And they say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been X number of days since my last confession. And then they talk about their sins, and then the priest says, Maureen, what does the priest say at that point? You're forgiven? I absolve you. Three Hail Marys and... They have... Here's the thing. They're doing this, but what they're calling it is the first one. They're saying that the priest stands in for God and grants godly forgiveness. I disagree with that. But friends, I think Catholics are walking around healed and we are walking around forgiven and we're both not getting the whole picture. Do you hear what I'm saying? We like to confess our sins to God. I mean, we don't like it. (laughs) But I sure as heck don't want to stand up here right now and confess to you all the sins I did this week. I mean, I I have (laughs) a lot, but I don't want to go into all the details. Um, It's safer to just confess to God because he's not going to tell anyone. (laughs) He doesn't gossip about it. Um, Also, I don't have to save face with him. I don't have to pretend with him. I can be utterly real because he doesn't judge like humans judge, right? So I, I see why the Catholic Church has built this and what my friend said, which is stunningly beautiful. She said, when I go to confess, and they actually call it the sacrament of reconciliation, reconciled with God. When I go and, do, and, and perform a sacrament, I am acknowledging that my personal sin doesn't just affect my life, it affects my church and my community. And by going to confessional and confessing my sin to the priest, I am acknowledging that I will put myself under another human and talk about my failings for the sake of the healing of my community. Is that not powerful? It's beautiful. I tried to go to confession this week just because I wanted to try it, not because I think there's any extra power in it. Do you hear what I'm saying? It turns out you kind of have to be part of the Catholic Church to do it. Well, and what my friend said is, well, you could go, but if there's a Catholic in line, you shouldn't take their place. You get that. So anyway, maybe I'll try and go another time, but I just think we're missing something. We need to confess our sins to God and we need to confess our sins to each other. And here's the thing. When you're confessing your sins within the context of community, they know your crap already. You think you're telling people about your sins? Honey, we can see it a mile away. Do you know what I'm saying? We see each other's sins, don't we? Some of us like to point it out a lot. I have some friends that point out my sin. And I'm glad for it because they love me. But this is important. In your trusted faith relationships, whether it's roommates, parents, children, marriage, threefold, 
church, whatever it is, in your trusted faith relationships, would you say to them, I would like us to start confessing our sins to each other and praying for each other so we could be healed and whole. Are you in? Someone's got to start it. It's you. You're the one. Okay? It's, your, it's up to you. If we are going to be people of confession. Okay. So let's try it. I can't actually see the clock because my eyesight's so bad. Oh, there's a little one down front that I've never seen before also. Apparently my stage, uh, my blur is real. Not just sin blur, but actual blur. Okay, um, so we're going to do some confessing. Um, here's what we're going to do. We are going to pray first to the Holy Spirit, to our Father God, and say, I would like to confess sin to you, but I need your help because of the blur because of the mix. So I need you to convict me of my sin, okay? So we're gonna ask him to do that. And then I'm gonna read through some scriptures because the best way, oh, this is one thing I didn't say. Catholics, they do a thing before they go to confession called examination of conscience. And if you Google it, you can, I've, I should get um, paid for the amount of times I've said Google today. Um, you can find all these examination of conscience prompts, caution, there is a lot of religion involved in their prompts, things that are, I, I don't think are actually what God wants to confess. But I'm, I'm saying that gently. Did you hear me? I don't want to offend because actually my friend that I talked with this week has the most extraordinary, beautiful relationship with God. So I, you know what I'm saying? I'm just, I want to do that carefully. But if you're going to search for it, you had better know your Bible so you can pick out which ones are the ones you should be doing, okay? But there's really cool examination of conscience about marriage, about parenting, about workplace, where they use scriptures and prompts about whether you have served and honored and loved people right. Woo, it is powerful. So we're going to do some examination of conscience using the Bible. We're gonna read verses and then we're gonna sit and say to the Lord, Show me. I know I've sinned in this way. Make me aware of when, who, what. And you might have memories or thoughts or reminders or something may come to mind and then say to him, that was a sin. I did it. I own it. And I want to turn back to you and turn from it. Forgive me. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. Does that sound good? Good. Everyone's like, sure. <laughs> As we do this, we need to settle something first. This is a condemned house. There's a warning sign on it. My friend posted this this week and I asked if we could use it and he said yes. When a house is condemned, the primary, the primary declaration is that the space is no longer livable. The condition of the home is not redeemable. I'm still in awe of Romans 8.1 which declares that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. 
That means even if you or the world around you have determined you're a lost cause, that nothing could possibly live in the condition that is you, that you should be torn down and destroyed, that you should be marked for emptiness, Jesus says, I'll live there. Isn't he amazing? There is a difference between condemnation and conviction. Conviction is when the Holy Spirit says, I love you so much. Let's deal with this little nagging thing that's eating away at you and hurting you. That's conviction. Condemnation is you are empty, you are void, there is no hope for you, and I do not love you at all. Do you hear what I'm saying? Utterly different things. And we can have confession because of conviction. Do not allow Satan to speak condemnation to you in this process. It is a lie. Thanks, Jesus, for wanting to live in us. Okay, let's pray. Father, you don't ask us to confess because you hate us or you're embarrassed by us or you're annoyed by us or anything else. You ask us to confess because we are worth being whole and healed. And you died for us to give us that. And we step into confession as the avenue to live in it fully. Thank you that you would even care to listen to us at all. That you even care about our little lives at all. Yahweh, it's incredible. Holy Spirit, speak to us today. Teach us how to confess, repent, receive your forgiveness, and how to obey and live in power over sin. So I'm going to read these slowly. You can sit with your eyes closed or open, whatever you want to do. You can sit on the floor. You can lay down, you can stand, whatever you need to do, you can do any of it, okay? God, I invite your searching gaze into my heart. Examine me through and through. Find out everything that may be hidden within me. Put me to the test. Sift through all my anxious cares. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life.
I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. We could go on and on. I have more scriptures, but we're going to stop. <laughs> this one alone, you could sit on this for weeks, couldn't you? What do I give my best time to? What helps me make decisions? Is it other people or is it God? <laughs> what do I bow down to? What do I worship? What do I give my best joy to? What, you know what I'm saying? We could unpack this forever. <laughs> In your practice of confession, maybe going through the Ten Commandments is a good place to start. What do you think? Pretty neat. Pretty neat. God is good, isn't he? I'm scheduling on my calendar Friday morning confession because I don't trust myself to actually put it in my everyday prayers with him. <laughs> so I am scheduling it. So if you're wondering what I'm doing on Friday mornings, probably before my kids get up, that's what I'll be doing. Because I'm front, I want to front load this in my life, right? I want to get it I want to get it right. We need our sins forgiven, friends. Don't we? Let's take communion. If you reach forward, there's two cups. Communion is really all about this. He was having a Passover feast with his guys and he was about to die. It's called the Last Supper. And he took the bread that was part of the Passover feast. It's something that they knew very well. And he said, brand new information, this bread is my body, broken for you. It gives us restoration. His broken body is what enables us to have that God hug. Father God, 
I don't know that your broken body, I don't know that I'm, I'm just not taking it for granted. Father, thank you. Thank you for saving us from our sin, for dying for us, to redeem us, to bring us back. And we eat this bread and we say, we accept your death in our place, God. And he took a cup, one of the cups that was drunk during Passover, and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of many sins. Jesus, we drink this cup and we say yes to your forgiveness. God, as we drink in your life, that you would separate the blur. Show us with clarity how to confess and receive your forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus. I am excited to see who we become in the weeks and months ahead as we become forgiven and healed deeper and deeper. I hope we come in unrecognizable from week to week because of the glow of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Things that have been holding us back from Him for years are going to be taken care of. Isn't that awesome? One of the ways we worship Him is we bring our tithes and offerings. 